You are listening to Building the Future, Green Building in the New Millennium, brought to you by SustainableHomesOfTheFuture.com. I'm your host, Ian Sollenberger, and this podcast is for anyone that wants to collaborate and learn more about how to design and construct energy-efficient buildings for an environmentally sustainable future. If you have questions about how to design and build with a lower environmental impact, or you'd like to come on our show as a guest, please email me directly at info at shf, that's sustainable homes of the future, shfbuild.com. Visit our website at shfbuild.com or find us on Facebook and Instagram at shfbuild. Our mission with this podcast is to inspire you, our listeners, to go out and be sustainability advocates. Share these ideas so we can truly push this industry forward. We need each and every one of you to help us build the future today. All right. Hello, and welcome to the Building the Future podcast. Uh, I am Ian Sollenberger, your host. Um, I am lucky enough to be joined by Marika Erdely uh, today. I pronounced that correctly. Good. Um, Of uh, Green Economy is her company. I'll have her speak a little bit more about that. Uh, That's my dog, Biscuit. Just the mailman. You know, here we are doing things at home. It's fun. and, uh, but before that, I kind of wanted to just do a little rundown. Um, so you have a you know, pretty extensive background in accounting and finance. Um, you worked for New Millennium Homes for a while, a big developer here in the LA area. Um, and then I also saw on your profile that you taught uh, at economics of sustainability in the UC system for, for a couple of years. And so that's yeah. very interesting. Um, definitely get around to that as well. But, but first off, I just wanted to, Sort of, you know, with that history and that background, um, what, you know, what was the impetus for you to start your own company? Um, and then why don't you tell us exactly what Green Economy specializes in, what you guys do? Yeah, uh, great to be here, Ian. Thank yeah, you thank for you. having me. Exciting to be on a podcast. Haven't been on one yet, so that's fun. Um, <laughs> my whole thought about starting my own company was one, I was tired of working for other people. <laughs> Truly, and just making them rich. Um, so I thought I'm going to myself, and hopefully, really, hopefully, it will. Not that I want it to be rich. Money is not the key driver for me at all. But it's more producing something or 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 giving guidance to help building owners save energy and and operate their buildings at a higher efficiency. It all comes down to me to money and dollars, you know, economics. I didn't really even realize that initially as much as I do now, but initially it was just Governor Schwarzenegger's law that came into play in October 2007 that basically stated that there would be buildings that would have to disclose their energy use. And so I thought, well, that's going to be very interesting and that's going to, somebody's going to be needing to do that. So I started benchmarking buildings while I was working at New Millennium kind of part-time or at night if I could find a building. And actually Brian Hennessy's building was one of the first buildings that I got um, to benchmark because I didn't even know what it really entailed. And I also joined the U.S. Green Building Council. They set up a commercial real estate committee. And so I was one of the co-founders of that committee and that kind of drove me into the whole industry and meeting a bunch of other people that were also just starting out 
um, 11 years ago. There was a lot, a group of us and many of us own our own companies now, but there was just, it was just starting to happen where people were looking at lead and it was important, but there was also other things that people were starting to focus on energy efficiency and what are other things that are consuming energy in buildings. And that seemed really interesting to me. And having grown up spending a lot of time outdoors, the environment was obviously something I really uh, appreciate and wanted to take care of. So that was also kind of a driver. If I could help building owners save money, then maybe they could save the, the planet too. Kind of, you know, the GHG gases, things like that. So I started Green Economy in March 2009. Green Economy has evolved into an energy consulting and construction company. Fortunately, I was able to get my lead AP and my contractor's license B while I worked at New Millennium. And so I used those to kind of propel me into starting my own business with those credentials. And later I became a C10, which is an electrical contractor, and I'm a certified energy auditor. So we really focused on the energy disclosure reports because they did come to fruition and they exist for the city of LA and the state of California. But we also like to actually figure out what's wrong in a building and fix it. So right. it operates more efficiently and the building owner isn't wasting money because that's the bottom line, right? Is the waste of money. So you're a solutions-based company. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I love the solution. And it's funny because today I got an email from somebody, literally I've called him like six times, never picks up the phone, you know, has <laughs> some screening. And he wrote me an email today asking a question about the proposal that we had submitted back in November of last year. And I thought, ah, oh, there you go. And I wrote him an email and told him exactly why our solution would save him money based on his bill. And I attached everything. So we're, I'm very interested to see it. Okay, now is he going to hire us? No. <laughs> um, so that's that's interesting. That brings up a, a something I'm curious about, which is, you know, what is generally the the lead time, or how many how many touches, you know, do you have to have with each of these folks before somebody buys mm -hmm. in? Is it different project to project? Where do you see the most uh, the most momentum? I guess you know, in what in what area of, of your work? Yeah, I mean, it's so different. I mean, so many. Uh, people have different needs and some people really care and then some people don't care at all. So the people that care, it's, it's kind of helping them understand what's consuming the energy and how do we tackle that? Like we had a call yesterday with somebody that owned four multifamily properties in downtown LA. They were all between 20 and 25,000 square feet. They were all built between 1914 and 1916. Wow. Okay. So properties over a hundred years old. They don't have air conditioning, but they also have very low energy star scores. So the energy star score is zero to 100. These buildings were in 21, 40, 34. I mean, low scores, mm -hmm. right? And we started looking at graphs because we can graph, we have graphs that come out of the energy star benchmarking process. And we can see that the gas is a, is a big consumer in that building, in those buildings. Um, because they don't really use that much electricity. It's just basically the plug loads and lighting, right? Even in the tenant spaces. And it's all everything that's consuming gas, right? And the state is kind of trying to get away from gas. And I'm explaining this to the owner that, look, if we changed everything, like the boilers to gas, to electric boilers, and then you added a solar system because he actually is a, on a master meter. So he's paying all the utilities. So for him, it's... Yeah. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then I said, we get a solar system covering your electricity and we'll get a battery 
I mean, he was just like, I can't even believe this. I hadn't even thought of this. So it was like people like that, you're just like, yes, people like that exist in the world that actually get it and understand and, um, you know, are ready to move. Sometimes it takes six to eight follow-ups, right? And even yeah. today with this guy responded, it was like, whoa, finally. You know, literally I've been calling him every month since, since I think November, yeah. So. That's great. Um, I love that you brought up the sort of all electric construction uh, or retrofitting um, because it is applicable to both. And we, when we talked last week, um, sort of to prepare for this, you know, one of the things we were discussing is that most of your work, um, interestingly enough, is in reuse of existing buildings or renovation of existing buildings um, and strategies to recognize where those energy savings and cost savings ultimately can be found. Um, you know, obviously in, in a new construction project, you're sort of getting a chance to design from scratch. And so you can implement some of those, but in both, in both aspects, the, the electric, um, electric construction or implementation of electric, uh, man, forgetting the word here, but like, uh, appliances. Yeah. Yeah. Systems like that. Um, you know, those can, as you said, not only provide energy savings, but then also cost savings. And I like that too, that you brought up that you have to focus on the systems before you worry about the solar panels. You know, there's so many people that think solar panels are the answer to everything. And while they're a great tool, um, talk a little bit about, yeah, like some of you have to work with all the other things that you can do first to bring those loads down and then you can worry about solar panels and how you're going to actually get that electricity, right? Yeah, I think the key with that is that the solar provider is never going to, or the guy who's coming out or the woman who's coming out to provide you that solar PV quote is never going to tell you, oh, wow, your consumption is so high. Let's reduce it. So then the solar system that I'm going to quote for you is going to be costless, right? They, they're happy that it's a, it's a high consumption because then it's a bigger system. So yeah, so first off you have to do is just reduce, you really have to reduce the usage or at least be ready to reduce it. And so know what like a lighting retrofit or HVAC, whatever you're going to be doing, control is going to provide so much savings and you can compare that against the total consumption of the building and you can approximate what that consumption is going to be and then build it off of that number rather than yeah. build it on the total number because that makes a big difference. But one of the things that people also don't realize is that even if you have a solar system on a building, you're still peaking, right? So there's still a KW peak that's happening. And if you're not controlling that peak and you're wasting energy, let's say if you don't have a monitoring system, it, like actually looking at your HVAC loads and your lighting loads, and you can actually see what's happening, then even if you have a solar system on top and it's generating energy and it's reducing that KW, so you're not having to pay as much for your KW, you could still be peaking because you'd still have other things turning on all at once or you know they're not as efficient, so they're using more energy. And LADWP still charges you on that peak. So you still could have a large bill even though you have a solar system in there. So you really have to kind of analyze what are your loads and when are they coming on and reduce them definitely to get control. That's one of the things we were proposing on this building that the guy connected me with today is that he's got, he's got stuff operating all, all 
hours of the day, you could see it on the bill. And that's obviously you don't, an office building shouldn't be running the same KW at the middle of the night as it is during the day when everyone's in there. So there's clearly a problem. And so do you go in and install those monitoring systems as well? Yeah. Yeah, we use a great system called Energy 360. And it's a monitoring system that I like it because the dashboard is really easy to use. And I, I, you know, I don't have an engineering background, but I, and I'm older, so tech sometimes has its moments with me, but I like it because it's just easy to use and to provide data and information to anyone who could understand it. Like if you have an admin looking at it, they could understand it, right? You don't have to have an engineer or a PE that's running that system to see what's really happening and sometimes buildings get these really complicated systems installed and no one really understands what's happening so i i do we do install these monitoring systems and then you can see what's really going on and if you if you do the loads you know by hvac unit or floors of lighting you can see when that stuff is coming on at three in the morning we saw it on a building literally the pro, the um, property manager was turning on the air conditioning at 3 a.m. because he wanted it cool, pre-cool the building. Well, you don't need to do it at 3 a.m., right? <laughs> but nobody knew it was on at 3 a.m. until we put the monitoring system on, and then we just like closed it, the loop in and said, no, we're going to start at 6, we'll make sure it's you know, adequate. If it's not, then we can change it because there were a lot of CPAs coming in at 7. But it's just the visibility of that with an energy monitoring system makes a huge difference. And it also can alert you when you're peaking, which then you can go, oh, well, what's on at that point in time? What can I turn off <clears throat> so I can manage that peak? Because that peak can be very expensive, especially in LADWB territory. Yeah. Um, what's, I think, unique about the fact that we're here in California, um, you know, I, you obviously are, are Title 24 uh, certified as well. And, um, you know, can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the programs what Title 24 is, and then also you and I talked about a program called Savings by Design that I thought was was pretty cool um, and an opportunity to you know sort of talk yeah. about how California is incentivizing and also legislating to to this energy savings. And yeah, I mean it's it's so great that um, the city and and the state of California definitely do have these great building codes and they are pushing the envelope every year. It comes out, the new code comes every three years and each year it's just a little bit more stringent. So it's a little bit more complicated and a little bit more energy efficient. It's not the easiest thing to read this title 24 it gives for sure. Cause it's the wording in it. And it's like, you got to look here and then you got to look here. And then if it's this, but the bottom line is that, for um, residential construction, California, it's not, it was supposed to be, we're right now in the 2019 code, even though we're in 2020, it just updated this year, but it always counts at the year before, names at the year before, I don't know why. Um, so the 2019 code was supposed to mean that all single family residential was to be net zero energy, which means that over a period of 12 months, what the building is generating is what it's consuming and what it's consuming ends up being zero during that period of time. But it didn't get that far with single family. It's almost there, but like single family now, if you're building more than 10 homes, you have to, you have to put a solar system on there. Solar PV is, is something that's required. So that's great. Now with commercial construction, 
projection, it's really moving towards net zero energy by 2030. And that code, that really brings into all kinds of efficiencies where you're really thinking of, you know, the insulation of the building is very key, how the, what the roof is, what kind of uh, cool roof or what kind of solar. I mean, there's all so many different things that you need to do to make a building net zero energy and then also to have battery backup. But if you think about the building code is moving to net zero energy for commercial construction by 2030, which is not really that far, that's going to be amazing. Like all new hotels being built are going to be like that. It's, I, I'm trying to envision how that's going to be. But now even beyond that, they're trying to talk about net zero carbon, which then means buildings aren't going to have gas. So there's all this development going on. And one of the things, there's a great net zero conference by a friend of mine, uh, Drew, that he puts on, and they had a, a speaker there. And the whole point is California is the leader of the world in all of this. So we have to be really strong and focused. And so it's great to see that the state is focused on that with Title 24 by making buildings push the envelope. But then what's happening too is there's an incentive program, Savings by Design. We used it for a hotel downtown. And it's if you can build beyond... 10% higher than the current building code, which the building is, the development is entitled under. So depending on what code that is, um, if you can build it more than 10% more efficient, then the owner of the property and the design team can receive incentives. And those incentives are throughout the state. So it doesn't even matter where the building is located, what utility it is, they're all the utilities are in this program. And what's great about it is it you have to develop a, an energy model of building and see exactly how it would perform under different conditions and how you could make it more energy efficient by maybe changing the HVAC or changing the different systems, adding insulation. So you can design the building before it's actually built to, to a higher efficiency. And then you can you send in that application and you can actually get money from the state to do that. And you can even get 10% more of the owner's incentive if you put in a monitoring system, which is what we wanted to do on this project, but we didn't get to do that. But it's definitely a way to help pay for some of the improvements in energy efficiency. And then if you think about it, if you're making it more energy efficient, it's going to operate at a higher efficiency. It's going to be worth more. So yeah. like, why not do that and outside of that box before you design it? Yeah. It's smart too because uh, you know California programs like that help uh, developers help you know folks in the in the sustainability space and the energy efficiency space to sort of ramp up and show what they can do before 2030 rolls around because right. you know in the residential space one of the things that seems so incongruous is the fact that not I mean not very many people not very many developers or owners or people that were about to build buildings leading into 2020 knew much about it. I mean, this yeah. legislation had passed, but you still had construction people who couldn't tell you what title 24 was or how they were going to achieve it. They're like, well, I guess we're just going to, you know, hire somebody to do it or whatever. And so the fact that they've got some of these um, programs that are sort of giving us a little ramp up to 2030, um, you know, is great, especially for, for companies like yours and companies like ours who are trying to push the envelope because we care, yeah. um, you know, and, and then allowing that to be shown on the bottom line, really. 
Um, that's it. I mean, that's, and, and because there are energy disclosure reports, right? So in city, the state of California, every building over 50,000 square feet has to disclose their energy. And I get a lot of people that are like, oh, Mickey, nobody cares, nobody cares. Well, I think actually when there's a recession or there's a downturn in the market, if you have two buildings and one is has done energy efficiency and has a higher energy star score and maybe has been energy star certified versus a building that's a 20 out of a hundred. So we know it's not been retrofit and who's what's, you know, that the, the economics and the valuation of those buildings are going to be very significant and people are going to, you know, they're not going to spend money on something that they're going to have to invest all this money. in when there's a building that's more efficient and the NOI is higher. So I think, I think the more information that's coming out with these energy disclosure reports and people are going to be able to see that data, assuming of course that the report has been prepared correctly, <laughs> um, that, which, cause that's not always happening yeah. uh, with editors that don't do that. But anyway, off of that, but the point is, is that with that knowledge of how efficient the building is operating, people can really use that to help make better decisions on what, how much a, a property is worth. And we can also then provide, you know, you guys have it on your website, provide case studies that show yeah. what was able to be done on another similar building so that if you're going into that, you can see before you even, you know, pay the money to, to do the energy model, you can already buy into the fact that, okay, if I do this, like these things are possible. So one of the other questions, um, you know, with the savings by design, the hotel project, how easy is it to achieve a 10% above code? Um, uh, how, how easy is that in your opinion? Um, I think it, in that case, it was, it was relatively easy. There were some different changes, I think with the compressors and, um, I'd have to look, there were some lighting changes, I forget. There were some different things that were brought up with the HVAC units themselves, mm -hmm. but like, had that project been, had they discussed it, like we were brought in a little bit late. To the project and they had already decided on a four pipe system for the HVAC instead of using a VRF, which is um, not a VF, yeah, VRF. Um, and that VRF would have probably been way more efficient, but the, no one had thought about efficiency in the very beginning. Even the architect had told me, geez, I would have designed this totally differently had someone said we want to be more sustainable and energy efficient. So I think part of that was um, had we even started earlier, it ended up being 28% higher wow. efficiency than the code. But I don't know if it's actually operating like that. And randomly, we just received an appliance incentive that um, we had completed for them, for the hotel, because we not only did um, the Savings by Design program, we also looked at all the appliances going into the hotel kitchen and seeing if, we, if they would select ones that were more energy efficient. And then they, they got almost eight grand that which isn't a huge amount of money but still still money yeah, um i'm trying and i finally got a contact with someone who works at the hotel and so i asked her if we could benchmark their building the hotel because they haven't benchmarked it to see how it's comparing to the model that we designed so i'm interested hopefully she hires us to do it i said we'll we'll analyze it for free i just want to see that data of is it actually performing where we thought it would be yeah well, and again, that brings us back to the, you know, how important it is for the, the monitoring systems and being able to actually. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, and it's the measurement and verification, right? So a lot of people will do projects and you just have contractors that go, let's just do this project and get it done. But you don't really, you really shouldn't do that when you're doing big HVAC units or big retrofit projects. You should really look at what is the impact of that going to be on the energy consumption of the building? Because, yeah, it might need to be replaced, but just getting an HVAC unit at, at the current building code, right, at a certain SEER level or whatever the code says, but if you could go to a higher SEER or two higher SEER and therefore you're going to operate at a lower cost because now the HVAC unit is going to be more efficient. And if you did a life cycle costing on that and go, well, look, it's going to cost you four years. It's going to be a four-year payback on that HVAC unit to go at a higher SEER. And you're going to manage the hotel or operate the hotel for at least 10 to 20 years. Like, why wouldn't you you know, spend that extra money if it's going to pay back within four years. And it's kind of a no-brainer. But they don't look at the numbers like that. But that's where people have to really start looking and going, well, does it make sense to just do this at this zero level? What is that energy consumption going to be? But I think a lot of contractors just say, hey, let's, this is what we're going to do. It's code. Fine, let's just do it. But Which, you know, really, really should look back and go, well, what's, that? what's the economics of that versus something more efficient? Yeah, which speaks directly to the point I was making in residential earlier, where these contractors, you know, might be really good at their job, at what they do. But unfortunately, their job has never, the scope of their job has never included energy efficiency. That was not something that was on the table. I mean, you might have some younger people that are, that came out of school doing that. And so they're trying to, you know, but most of these companies, yours included, are sort of in the startup realm. I mean, you have to, they're they're more of a startup than a a big huge you know uh monolith company that's that's doing all these um you know these energy efficiency strategies and so how do how do companies like ours smaller companies that you know have a certain market share but are trying to grow and and clearly there's going to be a market for it how do, how do we um how do we push people over the edge yeah, it's a it's a constant battle. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, I think it's I think it's you have to document. That's why we try and do a lot of case studies. You have to document the success of the project. Like where did the and it's measurement and verification. And I really think that's the key where you can show, look, in this building we just did this and this is the savings that we're seeing in the bill. Like this is the reduction. And if you benchmark the building, then you can see the actual Energy Star score mm-hmm. improve. So I think it's the it's the validation of the data. I think it comes down to that. If you can prove it with the data that look, this is what happened. We did this. We projected the savings. This is the savings that's occurred. You you've gone back to make sure it's correct, right? Mm-hmm. You that it's actually happening, which I think a lot of people don't do. But I actually like to do that because then kind of justifies like, yeah, we actually know what we're doing. It's working. You know, it's a really a good pump up feeling when you actually see the savings hitting the bottom line. And yes, they are saving quite a bit of money doing this, that they did the project. Right. So I think it's the validation of it. Maybe. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the energy star certification program. There's also, obviously you mentioned lead, uh, you're a lead AP um, as well. It, you know, there, there's a bunch of other ones out there, Passive House, uh, Living Building Challenge, um, you yeah. know, Green Star. I mean, there's there's eight or nine, but really when it comes down to it, Energy Star and LEED are the two, the two biggest, um, most notable. 
do, I mean, a big part of, of this benchmarking and a big part of being able to compare and have these case studies are those programs. Am, am I correct in saying that, like, you, have you seen LEAD grow uh, considerably over the last, you know, five, 10 years since you started the company? You mentioned while you were at New Millennium, you were getting all this certification back in, you know, 2007 or, or so. Um, was New Millennium doing that? Or was that just something you saw and mm. you said, you know what, this is going to be big. I, I want to hop on this. Yeah, no, no, New Millennium didn't want to do it. So um, <laughs> something, and I'm not even sure actually home for, Lead for Homes was even, was just starting then too. And Lead for Neighborhoods, I think was also just starting. So I think those were all kind of new concepts at that point. So I'm not going to blame them for that. But um, I think the Energy Star certification has shown that, and that, that requires that the building have an Energy Star score over 75. And with that, you also have to send either an engineer or an architect, licensed architect, into the property and they do, they conduct three tests. They test the illumination, making sure there's plenty of light, the ventilation, that the air quality in the building is, um, and um, thermal comfort, that the building itself is really comfortable to be in, not super cold on one end and really hot on the other, which obviously means there's problems with the building. Um, but if you have those tests done, and you can Energy Star certify the building and you can get a label and you put it on your front of your building. There's been studies, there was a study, I haven't been able to find a more current one, but in 2017, CoStar and BOMA put one together and Energy Star certified buildings were almost as valuable as lead buildings. Not quite as, as valuable, but close. And yeah. lead buildings, of course, do have an energy component, which is the same energy component in Energy Star. It's looking at the EPA's Energy Star software. It's the same data. And the more energy efficient your building is, the more lead credits you can But lead obviously has other factors involved. But I find that a lot of people don't want to spend the money on a lead certified building. It's, a, it's complicated. We don't really do any lead. I did one project in the very beginning for the City of Hope. It kind of reminded me of accounting to be honest, and I really didn't want to do accounting, which is why, sorry, my own company was talking But um, it's, it's very it's very labor intensive, which I think it's gotten easier now because there's more software programs and stuff you can put data in. But nevertheless, it's kind of, it's a lot of paper in mm -hmm. lead. Energy Star, it's really tied to that efficiency of that building. So I think it's easier to, one, to have it done at the building level. It's not that expensive. Energy Star certify a building. It does, you know, as soon as anyone walks in the door, you see that label. It's something in CoStar. There's a checkbox in CoStar for it. So I think as more time goes on, those buildings will be more people will know what understand what they mean and the valuation of it will even will even intensify, I think. And like you said, you know, in a recession, which we may or may not <laughs> uh, be entering yeah, now. Yeah, it's hard to know. Um, yeah. You know, what makes, and one of the things I talked uh, to Brian Hennessy about earlier today, we recorded another episode, um, was standing out from the crowd. Um, you know, and like you said, if, you, if you're uh, going to be making a decision, okay, I'm going to put money and energy and people and whatever into this building or this building, what what sort of value am I getting out of one versus the other and will you know this building because of its performance and because of the 
focus on like a healthier environment, better air quality, things like that. Will it, um, you know, be a more valuable asset, not just now, but over time as well. And so, um, it seems like you're saying the answer to that is, is yes. Yeah. I certainly, I mean, there, yeah, I think so. And there are, you know, there are REITs out there that have, um, grasped that. I mean, Kilroy, I'm sure has a high valuation. They're very sustainable. They're going to be carbon neutral next year or this year. Wow. When, so that's amazing. Then they're a big, you know, office REIT, but there's also um, some other REITs that have really focused on that and do have their portfolio is LEED certified. And I think those, they're very much respected in their industry, right? And they're all going to operate at a higher NOI. I mean, they're not going to cost as much to operate. So at the end of the day, the shareholders of those REITs are benefiting from that energy efficiency. It's just that I think they're way more sophisticated, right? So they all understand that and they've invested in that. Mm-hmm. What's hard is communicating that to the small building owner or the small portfolio owner that, hey, this is what's really this means and there's benefit to this. Um, I think the hardest part of all of that is the mixed incentive that exists between the building owner and the tenant when the tenant is paying the bill. Mm-hmm. The and that's something that... I think that's always going to be an issue until people really focus on green leases and talking about those things in the very beginning when the lease is just starting. How are we going to, because if you do buy the dud, let's say you do buy the 20 out of a hundred building, like who's going to pay for those retrofits? You're going to have a tenant that's going to reap the benefits, but who's going to pay for it and how is that going to all flush out? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so one of the things that we were talking about last week too was, you know, I asked you, do you think that the, um, the carrot or the stick is the better modality, I guess, for, uh, incentivizing or forcing whatever way you look at it. Um, those smaller owner owners and developers to implement some of these strategies. And you said, um, actually the, the the stick stick probably (laughs) more than the carrot at this point. I know, and I hate that. I really do hate that, but I do talk to a lot of people that own buildings because we offer a phase, uh, a consultation on the buildings that we benchmark for the the law, the disclosure laws. And, you know, a lot of people don't don't want to do the retrofits or don't want to invest in their properties. There's a lot that do, and, and many, many do it begrudgingly, but um, yeah, I mean, I think sometimes it's, it is the stick. I mean, in, in New York, I know they've added a, a quite a big stick to making sure buildings are energy efficient and, you know, it will get them moving. I think LA has not given a big stick. I don't know why they decided not to, but they didn't. And I think that's preventing it from really moving forward and achieving the goals quicker, right? You can always achieve the yeah. goal and it can take 20 years or do you actually want it to happen sooner Then you've got to have a bigger stick? Yeah. Well, and and two, in approaching, you know, 2030 and um, Title 24, you know, back to that, I think if you can sort of incrementally institute some of these policies or some legislation to, um, you know, force people to see that. And so, again, it doesn't come to be 2029 and then everybody's scrambling around to, you know, to, um, to implement these things because then it's just you know that's like rolling out the um the recent 
you know, marijuana legalization. Like there were, there were so many problems with it, despite the intention being really good. There were so many problems because they were just like, okay, yeah, we're going to legalize this. And then there wasn't a lot of thought on the processes of how that was going to happen or how you were going to lead up to it. It just sort of happened. And then there were mom and pop shops that were going out of business that had been in business as dispensaries for, you know, four, five, 10, you know, plus years uh, for some guy that just has a bunch of money and wants to start a dispensary. And he could do that because of the legislation. So I think there's, there's a certain amount of protection of, you know, not just allowing these big companies to roll in and say, okay, well, we have the money and the, and the skill set to do all of this, but really helping out small businesses, helping out, you know, between now and then, um, people that, that are caring and that are putting the energy and the resource, their own resources into these things for, for good reasons. And I mean, maybe there's an incentive there, maybe incentivizing small business and incentivizing, you know, smaller owners and, um, developers to, to do some of these things would, would help, um, you know, help with that, that sort of disparity. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's what LADWP was trying to do with their, their lighting and HVAC incentive programs, but like their program, they made it so complicated that they got so backed up that they then decided, Oh, we're going to change it to a different program. And now there's like a free program. And then there's also a bigger, better program for built larger buildings. So, I mean, so a bunch of people got free lights. Some people were happy with them. Some people weren't because who knows what the quality of the lights were. I don't know. But um, I think incentives help with that from the utility. But I think it's got to be workable and not so complicated. But then Edison's incentives come in and out. Like they have them. You got them for three months. And if you don't get them, then forget it. You've got to wait till next year. So it's, it's, it's managing that, like, that piece of it can make a big difference for people where it could cut, you know, 20% or 25% of the costs down. So then more people maybe would do the, the work if they knew they had an incentive, but the, the incentives, it just depends on the, the building, right? If you can get them or not and whether you get them up for free or not. Um, but that helps. But now with cost segregation in the way that you can actually write off a lot of these via your taxes and accelerated depreciation, which is cost segregation, where you do the retrofits, but you can accelerate it instead of 39 years, it's five years. And so you're mm-hmm. getting a tax benefit right away, relatively right away by doing the retrofits. It's almost kind of like, well, wow, if you have the cash and you have a tax liability or you can get the cash, then why wouldn't you do it? Because you can write it off. And these are all strategies that you're talking to clients about. I mean, everything yes. from grants to tax write-offs to, I mean, your full scope saying, okay, these are all available yeah. to you. Yeah. We bring those up all the time and say, look, this is, here's a cost segregation person here. Talk to this person. Cause then you can see, understand how quickly you can write this off. Solar projects right now are ridiculous. 50% of it is tax write-offs. Wow. Like commercial, solar project for there's a California incentive. There's a federal 26%. And now the new tax law has an additional 10% bonus that you can write the whole thing off that part off. So like those really, I mean, if you have a tax liability or tax appetite, then that those make it really a no brainer to me. It's just, Mm -hmm. I think people don't understand it and maybe 
Maybe they just still don't believe it that it's going to be like that. I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure why some people that it seems like such a great deal and you should do it. And they're still like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand. I mean, I'm just like, are you kidding me? But <laughs> this won't do it even when the numbers are really clear that it makes sense to do. Right. And there are also some strategies too, where um, you, you can, sort of spread that cost out over time. Um, I know PACE financing is yeah. one of the things that uh, that's available out there. Uh, C-PACE in California is what it's called. Um, do you see people doing more and more of that? I mean, and coming up with these sort of creative financing structures for some of these strategies? Yeah, I mean, we, we've done one PACE project and um, there was a lot of paperwork again with again, that. Yeah helping the owner because he didn't really have a accounting person. So I kind of stepped in that role um, to make sure he was able to get the PACE financing. Um, the problem with PACE is one, you have to have a project that's over, normally they're like $250,000. You have to do that much plus. Um, it's The cost of money is definitely higher than most people would have to pay if they went to a bank. So that a lot that turns off a lot of people. Then the lender of the, the first lender mortgage or of the property also has to agree to the PACE financing. So basically it ends up being an assessment on the property taxes of the property and it can be 10. So it's a bond that's issued and all, the entire 100% of the retrofit can be added to the property taxes of the property over a 10 year, 20, 30 year, whatever. Mm -hmm. Basically, retrofit the building, put it all on your property taxes, Energy Star certify it, get it all fancy labeled, sell it, right? Make a lot of money, and then someone else is paying the property taxes with that assessment, which, but still, they have a lower um, energy cost. So it makes it even makes sense for the person buying the building because the energy costs are going to be more stable because they're not going to be shooting up because it's a much more energy efficient building. And those property taxes aren't going up that much. They're not going up at the cost of energy. So it's kind of just shifting your money of where you're putting it, whether you're paying property taxes. And some of that property taxes can go charge, be charged to the tenant as an, in a camp charge. So then mm -hmm. the owner can pay for it anyway. Somebody else is paying for it. So it's really a good deal, but a lot of people don't understand that either. Right. I think yeah. some people, and then they say, well, I can get money cheaper from somewhere else. But it's the lender too that has to agree. And if you have a, a, a very structured, a lot of owners, then the owners have to agree. And that gets kind of complicated as well. We have that with the, another hotel we were working on where the equity fund really didn't like it or the ownership, real ownership didn't like it. And it was hard with the lender, you know. So you have a lot of parties that have to agree to that. But I think it's a great way to get a building retrofit and then especially if you're not going to keep it for long, just do it, face it, energy star certify it and then sell it. Yeah. Um, I mean, what I I'm resoundingly kind of hearing <laughs> is how complicated and ultimately how you, you need to hire somebody who's creative knows and what ha knows what they're doing and knows about all these strategies and is able to provide you the right kind of options for whatever your project is. I mean, and that's, and that's what you guys do. Yeah. I mean, I think it's understanding really, yeah. What are all the options, right? What incentives exist? 
What's cost segregation going to do for you? Should you use PACE? What's the bottom line energy savings you're going to receive? Um, yeah, and you know what's funny about all of that is it all ends up being accounting. <laughs> Back to where I started from, <laughs> which I didn't think it was going to end up that way, but it's all numbers. You know, it all ends up being numbers and data, and that's really the key to it. Like, I mean, our world kind of revolves around numbers and data now, right? And so mm -hmm. this is the same thing. It's just, and you can trust the numbers. They're, they're coming from wherever they're coming. They're pretty good numbers, right? Yeah. Well, we've got a whole bunch of people, you know, spending a lot of time at home these days and, you know, maybe having a little bit more time to ponder uh, the idea of where our economy's headed, um, what, you know, maybe they had a business that was in a particular sector and now that business doesn't seem as um, lucrative or, you know, as resilient uh, given current circumstances. And so I think it's the perfect time to be talking about these, these strategies. I mean, sustainability as a term, obviously is a, is a huge, uh, huge term. It can be applied to all sorts of different things, but really when I boil it down, um, I think it's, being creative, looking at the project, whatever it is itself and saying, okay, how can I uh, mitigate a downturn in the economy? How can I mitigate um, a global pandemic? How can I mitigate an earthquake? You know, all of these sorts of, of, of things. Oh, dog again. <laughs> uh, and, you know, ultimately, um, you know, how can I, how can I um, create a, a business that's going to stand the test of time or a building that's going to stand the test of time? And so it really, you know, it comes down to at the end of the day, it comes down to having some smart, creative, uh, innovative folks all coming to the table. It's not one person. One person can't no. figure this out. Two people can't figure this out. It's a team of you know, five, 10, however many people, you know, getting in a room together and really, uh, you know, bouncing around these, these outside the box act, uh, ideas and saying, okay, maybe some of these will work. Maybe some of them won't, but what are the best ideas that we have and how can we apply them here? And, um, I love that that's what you guys are, are doing. That's your business model, basically, you know, whether it's number, yeah. you know, no matter where it comes from. Um, one sort of final question I wanted to ask you, because I don't want to take up too much of your time here, but um, you know, what is, what is the most exciting opportunity um, as you see it when it comes to sustainability in the, in the built environment in buildings? Like what, what's something that just excites you? I, I am really excited about aerospace companies and energy efficiency for them. We've worked on one and we did some great stuff and we have been, um, referred to a sister project out in another city and that this I really like that because they're consuming a lot of energy so anything we can do is definitely going to help them but also they care right they're paying the bill they're the they're the tenant so whether they own the property or not mm -hmm. so it's kind of interesting working with that kind of mindset and they're engineers usually so they get it and I, I like that. I like that kind of innovation where they want to do solar, they want to do, you know, better thermostats, all LED. It's 
I like that environment because it's been around forever and there's still buildings that haven't even been touched yet, hmm. right? A lot of buildings have been, different types of buildings have had LEDs and attention, but it seems like a lot of the aerospace companies haven't spent money on that. So that's kind of an interesting area to me as focusing on that kind of use where you really kind of, and even though they have a lot of process use, so that's not something you could maybe control, but you could still control the peaks of when they're turning things on. Um, I, I do like that environment. That's neat. Um, and then the other thing that, that you had mentioned, we were talking last week, you know, most of your work tends to be in uh, renovations of, of older buildings. Um, but there's a huge market, you know, in new construction for what you guys are doing. Uh, if you can bring, you know, if I was a, if I was a, an owner and a developer of a particular property, I would, I'd bring you guys in, you know, day one. I mean, basically once yeah. I, once I figured out what my project goals were, I'd say, all right, well, let me, let me get the energy folks in here because that's where those strategies are going to come up. That innovation is going to, going to come up. And obviously you got to have some engineers and some uh, architects and some designers and, and things in that space as well. But any project that doesn't involve a considerable amount of uh, new construction project, that doesn't involve a considerable amount of energy modeling and, um, and thought and integrative design on the, on the front end is really missing an opportunity, I think. Yeah. Oh, totally there. I was at a, I met somebody who does build senior housing. And I'm like, are you considering energy efficiency? Nothing. Blank. Oh man. Blank. So, I mean that, so we're going to do, um, I just talked to my PE that we work with and he's going to model one of their buildings that they do. They're like these little mini mansions that they build that, they have Alzheimer's patients in. Oh, wow. Lease them out for a lot of money. And so you have, a, it's basically a 24-7 facility, right? When you have care in there and you have people in there. And if you're not considering energy efficiency, I mean, you can imagine what the cost of something like that would be. So we're going to energy model it. Nice. To show them how they could design it differently. So I'm going to try and... You know, I like that. I like the challenge of trying to figure out somebody who's not even thinking that way, hasn't even, doesn't even care, doesn't, or whatever. Maybe they care, but they haven't really focused on it, but kind of trying to open their, their eyes to a new way, new innovation, thinking outside of the box, right? Let's, let's not always think in the same way we've always thought. I'm really much a thought person of let's just be different. And sustainability has opened that up, right? You can, think out of the box in so many different ways. So I think, I think that's the key is just keep focused, right? Keep focused and open, keep opening doors for people to hopefully come step in and understand, wow, it really does make sense. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you so much for being with me. Um, taking time out of your schedule today. And uh, I would love if anybody out there, you know, is listening to this and wants to get in contact with you guys, do you want to give a little plug or any information you want yeah. to give so people can contact you? Sure. Yeah. I'm Marika Bertoli. I'm the founder and CEO of Green Economy. You can reach me at Marika, M-A-R-I-K-A at Green Economy, which has an E at the end. So it's a, uh, like M-E, which are my initials.com. You can just go on Green Economy. So it's G-R-E-E-N-E-C-O-N-O-M-E.com. And just you can contact us there or send me an email at Marika at Green Economy. And thank you, Ian. Appreciate it. It was fun.
Yeah, enjoyed it very much. Uh, have a wonderful rest of your day, and thank I'm you. Sure we'll be in you touch. Too. All yeah. right. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Marika. Bye.